Okay. Anybody having trouble getting here tonight? Run into any extra traffic? No, I didn't either. Last night I was about ready to cancel class. I got stuck in a bunch of stuff on Westview and everything. I mean, it was backed up almost from the beltway to my house. And uh, so I was discouraged. But today it was beautiful. So I think that uh, everything is open and clear. And there's still going to be some traffic problems because, after all, it's Houston. All right, a couple of reminders for announcements. Uh, Jeff Phipps is looking for a couple of uh, men to accompany him to Brazil to assist in teaching and also outreach ministry. And men who can do so need to have some leadership and teaching abilities. I know that um, uh, Ray Mondragon's going with him. I don't know if he just needs one more. I haven't had an update since that. Also on... Saturday, this is a week from this coming Saturday on the 23rd, there will be the men's prayer breakfast and uh, deacons meeting on Saturday, September 23rd. Prayer breakfast is at 7.30 a.m. Also, men need to make a note for the camp out, annual camp out on Friday night, October 20th, overnight from the 20th through the 21st. And then information is now on the Dean Bible Ministries website related to our trip to Washington, D.C. to go to the Museum of the Bible next April. And there's also information now on the Israel trip for next year, departure on June the 4th and return on June uh, the 15th. So you can now get all the information you're looking for. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we are in right relationship with the Holy Spirit and prepared to study the Word, and then I will, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're just so grateful that we can come together that after the hurricane that people are putting things back together, it's more difficult for others, for some than for others, but Father, we see your hand in the work in many, many lives as people have uh, helping others and just many, many testimonies, so many interviewed who give thanks to you and who uh, make an issue out of uh, your provision and your grace in sustaining them during this time. And Father, there's so many lessons that are learned and so many churches that have become involved in helping people. It's a tremendous testimony to your grace and to the impact of biblical Christianity in the world. Father, we thank you for our time that we can come together this evening to study, to reflect upon your word. And we pray that as we study, we'll be reminded of how these truths, even though written down some 3,000 years ago are just as significant and important for us as they were at the time they were written. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
Open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 1. 2 Samuel chapter 1. Now we're barely going to be in 2 Samuel, so I also want you to open your Bibles to Psalm 18. Just keep your finger in 2 Samuel 1, because we'll just be there for a second to set the context, and we'll probably be spending uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of four or five weeks going through Psalm 18. Psalm 18 has 50 verses in the English, 51 in the Hebrew. That's because part of the Hebrew text is the superscript that is uh, in fine print between, usually between the title Psalm 18 and the first verse in your Bible. That's part of the, that's the first verse in the Hebrew text. So this Psalm is written at the time David learns that God has delivered him from the hand of Saul. So what I want to do is read from Psalm 18, 1 through 6, including the superscript, and then in a minute we'll be into Second Samuel chapter 1. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord who spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, I will love you, O Lord, my strength, the Lord, my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold, I will call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. The pangs of death surrounded me, and the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God, He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry came before him even to his ears. Now, as we look at this psalm, there is a, I'm I'm calling the initial part, we're just going to look at the first two verses. This is basically calling on the Lord for deliverance. It's a rehearsal reminder of that. It's a long song, lengthy psalm, and it has a, a significance. Al Ross, who was one of my Hebrew professors at Dallas Seminary, who's written quite a bit on the Psalms and has taught the Psalms for over 60 years, and I've thoroughly enjoyed all of his uh, work on the Psalms, says about this Psalm that it is a rich and rather complex Psalm that may be classified as a royal thanksgiving Psalm. It is a royal psalm because it focuses on the experiences of the king, and it is a thanksgiving because of the contents and the structure. A couple of things I want to point out about that. First of all, I think that every royal psalm, because it's related to the human king, has as its ultimate reference point the messianic king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll see elements here that foreshadow that the future messianic king. The second thing is that as a thanksgiving psalm, 
that tells us that he is giving thanks to God and he's also teaching us how to give thanks. Now that's important because the Psalms often when we read them, if we read them devotionally, we read them in the midst of a crisis or difficulty, we we jump so quickly into application. We we relate to what the psalmist is saying and we connect it to our own experience very, very rapidly. But one of the purposes for all of the Psalms is to teach us things about prayer, things about how to structure prayer, how to uh, organize our thinking and to focus upon the Lord. So they all have this uh, didactic purpose. And one of the things that we see so often in a world where too frequently church worship and praise for God is rather superficial and thanksgiving is rather superficial we see that this is rather extended. We see how he talks about the foundation for calling upon the Lord and why he calls upon the Lord. We see his description that uh, follows of why he needed to be delivered uh, from the Lord and very uh, graphic and uh, metaphoric uh, language where he describes how God intervened in order to deliver him. And his conclusion comes at the end, verse 49, Therefore I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the nations, not just among the Jews, but among the Gentiles, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great deliverance he gives to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. Now, the context for this psalm is what's described in the superscript. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So let's hold your place here. and Let's just turn back briefly to 2 Samuel chapter 1. 2 Samuel chapter 1. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, David learns of Saul's death. And we read of his reaction down in verses 11 and 12. What happens is that on the day, or three days after the battle, a man comes from Saul's camp and he comes to David and he's going to tell David, Uh, how Saul died, and he's an Amalekite. Now, that's important to remember. We've studied the Amalekites and how they are the uh, lifelong enemy of Israel. This really started on Israel's exodus from Egypt as they're coming out of Egypt into Sinai. They were ambushed and attacked by this huge Amalekite army. And there you have the story where Moses is standing there, and while he has his hands raised, The Israelites are having victory. If his hands come down, then they begin to lose. And so Hur and Aaron stand on each side and hold up his arms, and Israel is given victory. Holding up his arms is a sign uh, that he is seen by the troops. His arms are up, and he is uh, calling upon God. And so that is the point of that imagery, is to remind them that God is the one who's going to give them 
uh, victory in the midst of the battle. And throughout that time, from that time, around 1446 B.C., until the present time, the Amalekites have continuously harassed and attacked Israel. They were an early form of terrorism. I hate the way since 9-11, everything's called terrorism. Uh, they are the enemy, and they're fighting to destroy Israel. In fact, even today in modern Israel, any nation, any group of people, any person that is an enemy of Israel is referred to as an Amalekite. It's become a a, a picturesque term to describe the enemies of Israel. So this soldier that comes to David is an Amalekite. That right away is is a problem. And he is David inquires, "Who are you?" In verse eight, he says, "I'm an Amalekite." And then uh, uh, David says, "Well, tell me how he died." And this guy claims to be the one who killed. Saul, that Saul asked him in verse 9, he said to me again, please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains to me. And then he claimed responsibility for killing the Lord's anointed. Verse 10, so I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Now, as we read this story at the end of 1 Samuel, we know that that is not how it happened. He wasn't involved at all. He's taking credit for something he had nothing to do with. Uh, David, uh, Saul, rather, was the one who fell on his own sword back in um, chapter, 1 Samuel 31, verse 4. Therefore, at the end, therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. So this is when David gets the news that Saul is dead. Therefore, verse 11 David took hold of his own clothes and tore them. This is standard in uh, Jewish culture. Their Middle Eastern people are, are very expressive in their emotions. And so this is standard, not just to hold that emotion in, but to let it go. And in this case, he let it rip and ripped his clothes. So he tore his clothes off, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned, and they wept, and they fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord, and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And I've underlined the English preposition for there, because we tend to read those uh, with slightly different senses there, but their focus is on behalf of Saul and on behalf of Jonathan, and behalf of the people of the Lord. It's the Hebrew preposition al, and it's translated over 30 different ways. And we see that in our own language, in English. You can see different prepositions, and when I'm talking to non-English speakers, who are, uh, especially if you're reading what they're writing, you often discover that they will really mess up prepositions. Prepositions are tough to go transfer in any language, but you often get some insights into how the nuances of English may come across or how they understand the concept in their own language. And we'll talk about that some in some other areas before too much longer, but here this probably has the idea of concerning 
or for or on behalf of. So they mourned, they wept, they fasted until evening uh, for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel. So they're weeping for every, the nation is mourning. So they're bereft. Now, you know, the picture of Saul that we've seen is that he's really been losing it and he's been very much out of control. And yet he is God's man for the job. David has firmly believed that over the entire time that he is indeed anointed. But he's weeping because of this tremendous defeat that has occurred for the nation. Now, once again, there it appears that they are going to be under the control of the Philistines. So this is the context. On that day, in that time, in that state of mourning... According to the superscription in Psalm 18, David writes Psalm 18. So in light of the fact that we're at a time period in uh, our world right now, at the end of our experience with Hurricane Harvey, we have a lot of people in the southeast and a number of people in Florida who listen regularly over the Internet, and they are just now entering into their their recovery from uh, Hurricane Irma, uh, I thought it fits well as we're studying Psalm 107 on Saturday morning to take a transition break also in our study of Samuel. And it's one that's in context because this is the time when David writes this psalm. So we see this in the superscription that it's on the day the Lord delivered him from the hand of of Saul. So this nails it down for us. But one of the interesting things is, is that this psalm, Psalm 18, appears in 2 Samuel 22, which is comes at the end of 2 Samuel. And if you uh, were to read it and compare it with, uh, compare the two, you would see that there are some differences between Psalm uh, 18 and Second uh, Samuel chapter 22, and many scholars believe that the reason it's put Samuel or the writer of Samuel puts it at the end is because it's used in the temple at the time of David's death to summarize how God throughout David's life gave him victory over all of his enemies and provided for him as the king of Israel. And so these changes that took place fit as it would be used in the temple service and in the worship of God. But its actual location in time, in the timeline in David's life, comes at this particular place, really right here in in. 2 Samuel chapter 1, and since it's a thanksgiving for God's deliverance in a crisis, it really fits well for us to think through what these issues are, how we give thanks to God after we have gone through adversity, and it's something perhaps the Lord can use in ministering to a lot of people uh, that we know, and people not only here but also in Florida, but it has application for any crisis that may come in life. Now, what we learn from the introduction is that this is written, as is common with many psalms, there's an introduction, it's written to the chief musician. This is the conductor of the symphony 
and the choir that sings in the temple. It must have been enormous. There's a Levitical choir and a Levitical orchestra, and it's not just five or ten or twenty people. It would have included three or four hundred. It would have been a magnificent uh, orchestra and a magnificent choir that would sing before the Lord. And so this, these lyrics are written, granted under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, but they set a pattern for us in how we should worship the kind and the quality and the depth of the lyrics that we sing in hymns. Now, we know that in West Houston Bible Church, I make it a point to choose quality hymns. And I've gone through the issues in the past. You can find them in other series, other studies, especially in, around Revelation chapter 4, where we studied the significance of words and music. And we live in a world today when I'm, I'm ridiculed by younger generations. I'm a dinosaur. And there are others we know are the same way who are dinosaurs because so many people, even in the music business, are so uh, uneducated and illiterate in the role of philosophy and religion on everything in life. Somehow they think that music is neutral. Music always reflects a worldview. The ancients understood this. Uh, Plato, Aristotle, many, many others. Plato said if you want to ch change the people, change the music. If you want to change the culture, change the music. Actually, I think he had it backwards. As the people's thought and worldview changes, it's reflected ultimately in both visual arts and performing arts so that you see this in, in, in what is painted and you hear it in what is, uh, what is written and what is sung. So it's more than just the lyrics. The words themselves, or the music itself, is a language. And we had a professor from... Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary here for a Chafer conference around, two, it was either 2011 or 2013, young man with degrees in musicology, degrees in philosophy, degrees in theology, name of Scott Annual, who's just completing his PhD, I believe, at uh, Southwestern Baptist, was asked to be on faculty there. He does a wonderful job. His name, for those who are listening, is spelled A-N-I-O-L, and you can purchase some of his books off of Amazon. But I challenge people that what we say and what we sing are important. The music is important, and the language we use whether it's a musical language or a written language, to express our praise to God must be that which reflects a divine viewpoint and a theistic worldview. So this is written to the chief musician. And then it's identified as a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. So we're told who David is. He's the servant of the Lord. And he spoke these to the Lord, the words of this song. So it's sung as a prayer. David wrote this out, and it is sung as a prayer, a prayer of thanksgiving to the Lord. And we're told that he does this on the day that the Lord delivered him from the hands of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So the author 
certainly is David. It's attributed to David. It's very popular among uh, modern, especially liberal scholars, but liberal scholarly opinion because it is so scholarly influences evangelicals wrongly. They Evangelicals just could succumb to the same problem that Israel had. They want to have the respect that all the other scholars have. And this has led generation after generation to the detriment of biblical truth. So we have to understand that that this is written by David, and there's no reason not to take this as Davidic, other than in their mind somehow it doesn't fit. Now, one example of this is uh, one contemporary scholar named John Goldengay, in his commentary on the Psalms, writes, for example, this could not have been David because the morality of this writer is far superior to the morality of David. He says, given his wickedness, it is hardly proper for David to speak of his integrity in such unequivocal terms. Now, see, what comes across here is a lot of the legalism that exists in Christian circles. We don't, one of the biggest problems Christians have had since the end of the first century and even during the time of the apostles is what to do with their sins after salvation. We confess sin and then we're forgiven and cleansed of sin and that Christians still have a sin nature. There's no sin that that any unbeliever can commit that any Christian can't commit. Christians can commit horrible, horrible, egregious sins that is not does not indicate that they're not that they're not saved. But you often have these kinds of statements, and usually they're based on a misunderstanding, failure to understand certain concepts. One con- the concept in this in this psalm, the verse in this psalm that is giving Golden Gay a problem, is verse twenty. Look down at verse twenty. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. He says, How can David say that? David is an adulterer. David's a murderer. David's a a conspirator. David is not a man of integrity. Well, wait a minute. First of all, David wrote this before those sins that everybody gets upset about, but I don't think that's the point. I think they, they misunderstand the concept of righteousness. David is called continuously a man after God's own heart. That doesn't mean that David was sinless, but that even in his worst Moments where he is controlled by the passions of his sin nature, even at that those times, David would still stop, given objectivity he as he was by uh, Nathan the prophet. He's a man who really wants to do what God wants him to do, and like many of us, we fail to live up to that which we want to do, and we do something much less than our own standard. We fail to live up to our own standards, but that doesn't mean our desire to please the Lord and to live for him is any less. So sometimes we think the word, we take the word righteousness here as is imputed righteousness. When uh, Abraham believed God, it was imputed to him as righteousness. So 
Is David saying that the Lord rewarded me according to my imputed righteousness as, a, as someone who is saved? Second way in which we use the word righteousness has to do with our experiential righteousness. The Lord rewarded me according to my experiential righteousness, and that can fit here. There's an there's, there's important distinction between those two. Im, imputed righteousness is what we get when we trust Christ as Savior. His righteousness is imputed to us, and on that basis we're saved. Experiential righteousness, though, doesn't relate to our initial salvation. It relates to our spiritual growth in phase two. We'll look at the chart in just a minute. And so that's our experiential righteousness when, we're, when we are walking in fellowship with God. And see, he says here, according to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. And see, in the Old Testament, we have to understand how this concept is used here. The psalmist in this section is declaring that he loves the Lord, but within the framework of this particular uh, section, he recognizes that he has been cleansed, and therefore this is experiential uh, righteousness. There is a claim that we find through, that runs throughout the Psalms where the psalmist, in many cases David, in some cases others, claim to be blameless. That doesn't mean they're sinless. They claim to be blameless. They claim to be righteous. This is experiential. It's because they have followed the procedures of the law. They have confessed sin. They have been cleansed ritually. They have confessed to God, as David did in Psalm 51, and he is forgiven and he is cleansed. In the Old Testament concept, someone who is righteous is not just someone who's saved, but it is someone who is living their life on the basis of the Mosaic Covenant. They are, when they failed, they are cleansed of their sin ritually, and they confess their sin to God, and they're uh, cleansed in reality. And so we have to interpret that, that when there is a claim made to blamelessness or, or righteousness, that it's in that context. I want you to see a parallel. I want you to turn, keep your place here, and let's go to Psalm 104. Uh, excuse not 104, Psalm 44. Psalm 44. Just a few pages over. Psalm 44. I love this going through the Psalms like this. Here we have a Psalm that is written to the chief musician. It's a contemplation of the sons of Korah. This was a division of the of the Levites. It's not Davidic. Per se, it may have been. There are many Psalms David wrote that are not, he doesn't put his name to. But there's something interesting about this Psalm. Psalm 44 is a national lament. It's a national lament where an individual lament was when an individual is in a crisis and he's calling upon God to deliver them. This was a national lament when the nation is in a crisis. And they are calling upon the Lord uh, to deliver them. And they start off in verse 1, We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days and the days of old, how you drove out the nations with your hand. That always refers to his power. But, but them you planted, you afflicted the peoples and cast them out. 
For they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did they own arms. Save them, but it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance. So they start off talking about how God gave the nation victory in times past during the time uh, of the conquest. And then they go on and talk about how God has always provided for them and how they trust in God. In other words, they're claiming a blamelessness, okay? They are covenantally correct. They have been walking with the Lord according to the covenant. They say, you are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you we will push down our enemies. Through your name we will trample those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. But you have saved us from our enemies. You have put to shame those who hated us. In God we boast all day long and praise your name forever. There's nothing wrong with that. They're trusting in God and God alone for their victory. But they've been defeated. They've done everything right, and they have been destroyed in battle. Now, if you... I used to have a seminary professor that would say, if your theology is not broad enough to handle a massive failure when you've done everything right, then you need to readjust your understanding of God and the truth of God's Word. One of the examples he used to give of that was, I think it was four young men who had trained, gone to, I believe, Princeton, gone to seminary, spent all that time studying to prepare to go on the mission field, and they had set out to go to Korea. They had a desire to take the gospel to the Korean people. They had their trunks filled. This is at the time of uh, middle or late uh, late 19th century. They are they traveled by ship, which took an enormous amount of time in those days. They come, and they are in a boat from the ship being taken ashore, and they are attacked by these barbaric Koreans, which they were at the time. They viewed all uh, foreigners as enemies, and they killed them. And they slaughtered all of the men in the boat, and the boat washed ashore, and they captured their trunks, which had all this literature translated into Korean, giving them the gospel and giving them the scriptures. And as a result of that, they were saved. And we look at that and go, what a waste of education. What a waste of time. See, our theology is too narrow and too limited. We have to understand God is a God who has a much broader purpose than we do. And Romans 8.28 means that all things work together for good. We don't necessarily understand it. And so they're defeated. Verses 9 through 12 describes this. You cast us off and put us to shame. You don't go out with our armies. You make us turn back from the enemy, and those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You've given us up like sheep for food and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people for next to nothing. You're not enriched by selling them. That doesn't sound like it's, you know, nice, encouraging words to God. They are complaining to God that God has let them down that God has failed them when they have been faithful to the covenant. And that's a point I keep making as we read the Psalms, is that in prayer we should be honest with God. You don't stay there. They don't stay here. They don't sit there in bitterness and blame God. They're not bitter. They're questioning, what are you doing? God, we are in trouble. You need to rescue us. He goes on in verses 13 
through 16 to describe how God has made them a reproach to their neighbors, a scorn and a derision. This doesn't sound like God's doing a great job answering prayer, is it? And then they claim in verses 17 and 18, all this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you, nor have we dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. See, that's the same thing that David is claiming in in Psalm 18, is he's claiming to be righteous. He's not claiming to be perfect. He's claiming to be faithful uh, to the covenant. You have this kind of thing go on again and again in the Psalms. So what we see here when we talk about righteousness is that we have to distinguish between phase one righteousness and phase two righteousness. At phase one, this is what happens when we hear the gospel. We believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and at that instant, God credits to us, he imputes to us, he reckons it to our account, the righteousness of Christ, so that we are clothed with the, as it were, white robe of Christ's righteousness, which covers our sin and corruption. And when God's justice sees us, he doesn't see the sin underneath, he sees the righteous, brilliant, white raiment that Christ has given us. That is ours forever. That is who we are positionally in Christ, and we are declared just. It happens in a moment of time. Then after that, we have to grow because we're still a whiny little baby. We don't have anything between our ears related to the truth of Scripture, And until we're taught something from Scripture, we can't grow. We can't be nourished on the milk of God's Word. And so as we grow in our spiritual life, it's a progressive sanctification. We're saved from the power of sin, and we grow and mature, and God produces experiential righteousness in our lives. And when we confess sin and we're restored to fellowship... We can say, I'm righteous, I'm cleansed, I'm blameless, because we've been forgiven and we've been cleansed. It doesn't matter how bad the sin was. That's why it's a sin to feel guilty, because God says no matter what you did, no, no matter how horrible the sins were, if you confess them, you're cleansed and you're forgiven before me. Now, if they're criminal or you've really injured somebody else, that's a different issue than our standing before God. But you're cleansed by him, you're forgiven by him, and you can claim that you are blameless before God. Did you commit those sins? Certainly. Are you forgiven? Yes. That has been wiped clean. Therefore, when you say, oh, I feel so terrible, I so, feel so guilty, look at what I did. You're saying, God really didn't forgive me and cleanse me. You're blaming God. Uh, and you're accusing God of not being true to his word. That's why guilt feelings are a sin, because we're denying the truth of 1 John 1, 9, that we're cleansed and forgiven. So when we're cleansed, we're righteous. That's why David can say, the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. He's cleansed, he's forgiven. We have other passages that talk about this. For example, in Psalm 1913. David says, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless. Okay, when I'm not walking by the sin nature, I've been forgiven and cleansed, then I'm blameless. 
and I shall be innocent of great transgression because I'm not performing these things. Psalm 51 talks about how he confessed his sin. That's his psalm of confession after the sin with Bathsheba. So David is the author here. It fits perfectly with David, and the liberals just can't understand grace, and they can't understand the the power and the sovereignty of God in preserving his text. So let's look at the theme of the psalm for a minute. In the theme of the psalm, the psalmist, it's David, expresses his gratitude and his joy and his praise for the Lord's miraculous deliverance. It's uplifting. He's thankful. He's grateful. We always need to express that. One of the greatest things that we can do is to be thankful to people, to always express our gratitude when people do little things for us are big things for us. But even the small things, we need to express our thankfulness. The psalmist expresses his gratitude, joy, and praise for the Lord's miraculous deliverance by explaining the circumstances of his distress, the details of the problem. Sometimes, well, we don't need to tell God. He's omniscient. I don't need to tell him what happened. Well, then David made a mistake by the Holy Spirit, didn't he? We explain the circumstances of the distress, and we tell God about it and how it's impacting us. And in that process, it's amazing how God the Holy Spirit begins to work to change the way you think about what happened. And you begin to understand it from God's perspective and not from your self-absorbed, why-me, self-pity perspective. The distress and the merciful response of God to his pleas of, re- of deliverance. So it ends up focusing on the grace of God as the only one who can solve the problem. Now, the, what happens here is the only thing that can really make a difference is our understanding of the word. We have to know the word. It has to be in our mind, not just what the word teaches in terms of abstract principles but the word itself it's amazing the more i read through the psalms and i read and i read a verse i think wait a minute that reminds me of something said over here but that doesn't come because you've read the bible three or four times that comes because you've read it dozens and dozens of times and the more you get familiar with it the more it's in your mind the more the holy spirit can use it we need to be reading our Bibles. Now, this is September, so we're three-quarters of the way through the year. I hope many of you are following the Bible reading. I'm always encouraged by people who tell me, well, I've been reading through the Bible. I'm really confused when I read Ezekiel. And I say, good, keep reading. I'm confused when I read Ezekiel, too. And until I sit down and study it and take a lot of time with it, I'm going to be confused. But we can set it aside And then over time, God the Holy Spirit helps us to understand these things. One day I may get there. I'm doing a study right now of Isaiah. I've got to master Isaiah before I can teach it because it's 66 chapters. And I'm not going to teach it verse by verse, okay? We're not going to be in Isaiah when I get there for more than maybe a year or so. You have to do studies in those big books. Because if you go through verse by verse, you'll be there till Jesus comes back. Now, it's simple. (laughs) It's simple to read your Bible. 
Bible has 1,189 chapters, 1,189 chapters, and if you divide that by 365 days, that's three and a quarter chapters per day. Now, what I like to remind people is there's always days you're going to miss. For me, I'm not going to read my Bible on Sunday. I'll read others, but I'm not going to read my, you know, five chapters a day where I'm tracking through the Bible. I'm very busy in the morning studying for what I'm going to teach. And usually I get busy on Saturdays, things things are going on, so I'm going to give myself a couple of days each week, and so I divide that by, I figure out the 104 days that uh, subtract from that, which, which uh, leaves me with uh, 261 days that I'm going to do. And it comes out to about four, a little over four chapters. So if I read five chapters a day, five days a week, then at the end of a year, I'm going to finish reading through the scripture. Now, here's what I think is really convicting. It takes 72 hours to read the Bible out loud. Now, that's reading out loud at a normal rate. That's not reading it like an auctioneer. Speed talking. Just reading it out loud at a normal rate. It takes 72 hours to read the Bible out loud, 4,320 minutes. So if you divide that by 365, that comes out to about just less than 11, just less than 12 minutes a day. Now, if you do take off a couple of days, it comes out to where it's a little bit less than 15 minutes a day. And you can read it silently faster than you can read it out loud. So 15 minutes a day. Most people waste probably three hours a day looking at the news and reading all the emails and getting on Facebook and Twittering everybody and all that other stuff. We need to read the text. Okay, Psalm 18. The opening section, we'll look at this, these first three verses. I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. Starts off with this declaration, I will love you, O Lord. Now, it's interesting. In Hebrew, there's a couple of different words for love. We have hav, which is our standard word for love. Sometimes we have the word chesed, which is translated loving kindness, which refers to God's loyalty and his faithfulness to his covenant. This is a strange word. This is a word that is more often than not used of God. One thing I should know, in your English, at the end of the superscript, it says, and he said. Okay, at the end of, look at your superscript. It says, and he said. That's actually in the first verse, what we call the first verse in an English text. But for sake of preserving the poetry of the first verse, in the English version, they put that up into the superscript. So David says, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. This verb is the verb racham, the verb racham or racham, probably racham, Hebrew usually accents the last syllable. It's a cal imperfect, which can be taken as 
it sounds like it is a uh, as a future. It's not saying I will love you, Lord, tomorrow. It is making a statement of fact. I will love you. It is a it, is, it has a nomic sense, an eternal sense. I love you now. I will continue to love you. It is a statement of reality, and he's addressing it to God. But this word is a interesting word. It is without exception, other than this verse, used of God's compassion toward sinful men. It's related to his grace toward men. It has the idea of loving deeply, having compassion or mercy. It's only used 17 times in the Old Testament. Now, the noun form uh, which is uh, rechem, is the word for womb. How do you get from womb to deep, compassionate love? Because the only a mother has a womb. Dads, you just miss out. Even in tr- a transgendered world, it isn't going to happen. <laughs> you have a womb in the mother, and that produces a child and the love that the mother has for the child is the result. It's connected to the womb. And so that's how they make this transition from the literal sense of rechem for the womb to the figurative sense, this deep, compassionate love, which is comparable to the love that a mother has for a child. So it's used then in the language in contexts that are emphasizing grace, unmerited favor, and also hope, that which looks to the future. It expresses someone's desire uh, to show favor. Now, it's used in a couple of interesting places in the Scripture, and for sake of time, we won't go there. But it's used in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 26, to talk about, remember, this is a situation with Solomon where the two women come claiming to both be the mother of this child. And it is describing the real mother and her love for the child that instead of having Solomon split the child in two, she's willing to give the child up. It describes that mother's love. It's also used in Genesis forty-three, thirty. That's another fascinating story. This takes place when Joseph is the prime minister of of, uh, Egypt, and he is now dressed like an Egyptian. His head is shaved. Actually, they shave their whole bodies. His body shaved. The beard that you see is a fake beard. So he's got his fake beard on. He's got all of his, uh, the glorious robes as befitted his office, and these... uh, 11 Hebrew boys, young men come in, and um, this time this is their second trip, and with them they have brought uh, their youngest brother, Benjamin, who is actually Joseph's full, full-blooded brother. They both had the same, same mother. And so when we're told that Joseph looked upon Benjamin with compassion, that's this word, 
Racham. He looked at him, and he's so overwhelmed by his compassion for for Benjamin that he had to leave the room because he didn't want them to see him break down and uh, and weep. So that tells us how this word is used of, of humans in different situations, but it's also applied to God. For example, in Deuteronomy 32, 17, so none of the accursed things shall remain in your hand, that the Lord may turn the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you. So this is promising what God will do if they walk with him. God will have compassion on them. This is the same word. It's used in Deuteronomy 30, verse 3, a passage that should be familiar to most of you here. This is one we've studied many, many times. It is the promise after Deuteronomy 28, 29, talking about how God is going to bring judgment upon Israel and scatter them throughout all the nations. And then it says that the Lord will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. That word gather, we saw Sunday, it's, it's related to the word kibbutz. It's kavat, um, to gather again. So kibbutz, which is a, was a sort of a collective, it was a uh, uh, village in Israel where everybody shared everything. It was sort of a communal existence uh, that's related to that word, to gather people together. And we also see uh, the word bring you back from captivity. That's uh, to return and uh, have compassion on you. So that's what God says there. In Second Kings 13.23, we read, But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them and rewarded them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would not yet destroy them or cast them out from his presence. It's used again and again in this context of God's mercy and his grace. One more verse to look at, Isaiah thirty eighteen. Therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you, and therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. Notice the words, gracious, mercy. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. What's the word for mercy? It's racham. Okay, it's this compassion on them. Blessed are those who wait upon you. So this is the word that David uses here. And there are attempts by people, well, he can't really use that. And there's all this. Well, that's what the text says. And what David is indicating here is he's matured in his relationship to God through this time period in the wilderness so that he is reflecting back to God the deep love It's not just a mental attitude love. It is a deep soul passion toward God who has delivered him and rescued him and fulfilled this promise that he's created in the image of God and he can reflect back to God the divine love that has been shown to him. So this is a love that is developed because of David's spiritual maturity and his spiritual growth during those wilderness wilderness years. And he says, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. Now, there's no verb there. It doesn't say the Lord is my strength. 
It said, I will, do, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. That He is equating strength with God. It's the Hebrew word chazek, and it means to be strong. It's not the word I would have expected here. Often when God is referred to, there's another word that is used, but this word is used, and again, it indicates strength. It is a reference to God's omnipotence that has played itself out in the life of David. As I've said so many times, when we are in times of crisis, we should walk our way through the attributes of God and think how that attribute applies to that circumstance or situation. God is sovereign. Well, what does that mean? God rules over the affairs of men. Romans 8.28, all things work together for good, even though I can't understand it because I'm sitting in this manure pile of a life. Nevertheless, God must uh, be in charge, and there's a reason for this. I'd like to use that illustration. My college roommate, who I've known since we were about 10 years old and we grew up in church together, used to always tell me, he said, God must have a plan for your life because every time you land in a pile of manure, you come out smelling like a rose. I said, well, it's the grace of God. It has nothing to do with me. God is the one and who did that for David again and again and again. He is his strength. It's a, a similar construction here that we find in Psalm 23.1, where we usually read, the Lord is my shepherd, but the is isn't in the English. It's the Lord my shepherd. It's identifying a trait in that noun directly to God. And that's what this is doing. The trait of strength and power is appositional to God. It is explaining specifically who God is and expressing that aspect of his power. So when we recognize this, there are three things that we must, that must be accomplished in, for us to realize this in our lives. First of all, if you're going to have this kind of relationship to God where you can truly fully say, now we can say it in a limited sense, but to fully say it as David says it, I will love you passionately. We could add that, Yahweh my strength. First of all, we must be, as David is, uh, righteous. We must be cleansed and walking by the Spirit. That must be a standard characteristic of our life. We're cleansed, we're walking by the Spirit. Second thing, we have to be internalizing the Word of God every day. It, it, we're, we're, we're fighting an uphill battle getting the Word of God into our, our souls because the sin nature wants to uh, uh, kick it out all the time, constantly wants to replace it with human viewpoint. So we have to purposefully read the Word, study the Word, think about the Word, and purposefully not let ourselves get so distracted by the cares of life that the word, word's, word's power disappears from our life. We have to be reading it day in, day out. Now, some people can't read five chapters a day. Some people are doing good to read one chapter a day. It all depends on what your circumstances are and how you read. You know, some people say, well, Rob, I've heard this all my life as a pastor. Why don't you teach five times a week? Because I study. I really study. I read a lot, and I can't do study at that depth and teach five times a week. Not the way my head works. I have to spend time studying. Now, some people, if they're going to sit down and read their Bible, 
they got to read five, six chapters. Maybe they'll read them twice. That's the way they are. Other people, they can read a half a chapter and they just really think about it. But they're going to progress as long as you're spending that time in the Word, walking by the Spirit. That's what's important. Don't become legal. A lot of grace people are legalistic. Did you know that? They get legalistic. Well, if you're not in Bible class three or four or five times a week, then you're just not with it. That's just legalism. You never see those kind of standards laid out in, in the Scripture. So you have to be internalizing the Word of God into your lives daily. Third, we must be crying out to the Lord. That's what David's doing. He's cried out to the Lord again and again and again, as we've seen him in the wilderness. And he's utilizing the faith rest drill. Practice, practice, practice. It's not just practice. It's perfect practice. Because if you practice something poorly, then the end results are poor. But perfect practice is what's needed in order to have perfect performance. Now, we'll never achieve perfection. But there's a quote from Vince Lombardi that I love. That it, we can never achieve perfection. But if we aim for perfection, we just might hit excellence. Isn't that a great quote? Sometimes we're just happy to hit mediocre. We, got our, we have our sights set way too low. We need to aim for perfection. Don't put yourself under a guilt trip, but aim for protect, perfection and maybe you'll hit excellence with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, thanks for this time that we have to study your word, to be reminded of who you are, and to see how you have worked in the life of David to deliver him, to protect him, to provide for him. Uh, whether he was in circumstances of his own making or failure, or whether he was just under the guns, as it were, of Saul's evil machinations. And Father, we pray that you would help us to realize there's much that we can learn from David in the wilderness, because in many ways, as church-age believers, we are in the wilderness of this cosmic system. Father, we pray that you would challenge us to focus more upon you through your word, trusting in you, walking in the Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.